I have called up in all my years of sorcery Hello and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week we'll be covering The Vaults of Yovambis. So, we're still on Mars. Different Mars. A slightly different Mars. Yeah. Uh, the Vaults of Yovambis uh, was originally published in the May 1932 issue of Weird Tales. Mm-hmm. Didn't list any of the other authors uh, because they're all names we've heard before. I keep trying now to find, um, as I have in past e- episodes, find just some examples of the poetry that was in Weird Tales. The mm-hmm. internet will not yield to my investigations. Uh, there's one that was called like Corpse Dust in this Whoa. one or like Tomb Dust or something. That's kind of cool. like, surely the internet must remember this poem, but <laughs> the internet has no recollection that a poem like that was ever written. So <sighs> it's too bad. The, um, if, you, if you have the May 1932 issue of Weird Tales, send us that poem because I'm dying to read it. The story was actually something that he wrote back in um, 1931. So at the same time that he was composing The Seedling of Mars and... Um, one Steve Barron suggests that the setting might have been influenced by a series of wildfires that he was battling, pointing out that he described a uh, blaze as being as dark and dingy as the burned out sky of the planet Mars or the post blaze. He completed it in September of 1931, but as usual, it took some rewrites going by right. It was like, eh, not going to publish it. Lovecraft's like, publish it! Tell him he has to publish it or else! And Smith's like, I'm just going to rewrite it so that I get paid. And such was the story, as usual. So he rewrote this and then it came out in the May 1932 issue, where it was tied for most popular story. I mean, that's not that long a turnaround, ultimately. No, it's uh, really not bad, considering. Yeah. Um, so unlike most episodes and stories i didn't pick the opening of the story for our first reading because i liked the, the story has like a little bit of a preface and then it and then it begins it has a frame story essentially actually in the the one that i i read it the second time through eldritch dark but the first time i read it was through the collection return of the sorcerer and mm-hmm. in that one it starts it doesn't have the frame story beginning it has all of that stuff at the end um, so all of oh, the stuff about in the hospital and about the doctors talking to him all come at yeah. the end in that one. And it starts just with uh, Hot Rod starting his story. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> well, the, the Eldridge Dark version begins with this like doctor's report uh, about a um, patient who has disappeared out of his Martian hospital. Um, right. And they think they know where, but yeah. Does it mention the tracks leading back to Yovambis, or does it not mention that? Yes, his bare footprints were found in the desert going toward Yovambis. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a cool way to start the story in that, you know, it kind of gives away the ending, but it also um, is mysterious enough to the, to hook you. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely didn't see... I wasn't sure what was going to happen. 
If the doctors are correct in their prognostication, I have only a few Martian hours of life remaining to me. In those hours, I shall endeavor to relate, as a warning to others who might follow in our footsteps, the singular and frightful happenings that terminated our researches among the ruins of Yovambis. Somehow, even in my extremity, I shall contrive to tell the story, since there is no one else to do it. The telling will be toilsome and broken, and after I am done, the madness will recur, and several men will restrain me, lest I should leave the hospital and return across many desert leagues to those abominable vaults beneath the compulsion of the malignant and malevolent virus which is permeating my brain. Perhaps death will release me from that abhorrent control which would urge me down to bottomless underworld warrens of terror for which the saner planets of the solar system could have no analog. I say perhaps, for remembering what I have seen, I'm not sure that even death will end my bondage. So I'm, I'm just going to put this out here because I like Mars and I've um, actually fake driven a Mars rover. I got to sit at the Mars rover driver's computer nice. and he pulled up the rover that's stuck and no longer driving and dead and let me um, drive it. Except that, you know, I sent it commands and it didn't do anything. No. <laughs> the commands were actually probably never sent sent. But I did a command sequence and it mapped out how it would drive and like how it would interact with the terrain. And it was really cool. Um, but the thing is a Martian hour is, well, a Martian day is 24 earth hours and 37 minutes for a side year old day, which is, um, I believe how long it takes to actually spin, but then it's solar day is only 24 hours and 39 minutes and 35.24409 seconds. So what I'm saying is a Martian hour is like an hour and five minutes or something. Well, you know, they're scientists. It's an important distinction to them. <laughs> right. And we got to make sure we know where Those we are. Those extra few minutes. Hey, yeah. that matters, right? You know? It's definitely a Martian hour. Especially hour. when you're broken and treading towards your death. Oh, but this also reminded me of, well, this reminded me a bit of uh, Mountains of Madness, where he yes. wants to tell the story to make sure nobody goes there. Did this come after or before Mountains uh, of Madness? After, I think. Yeah. Um, so what? So what's our what, what's the story here? Who is who's talking? And oh no, Mountains why? of Madness was oh Mountains of Madness was written that same year. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, we have an adventuring party of scientists. Are they? All, oh, they're uh, archaeologists. Archaeologists. Yeah, eight, eight um, professional archaeologists. Yeah, our narrative is our narrator is Rodney Severin, who we'll just call Rod from now on. Mm -hmm. uh, and our other hot Rod, hot Rod, <laughs> our other main. <laughs> is uh alan octave um, yes i don't think we learn anybody else's name not that i can remember not there's harper oh, oh yeah william harper jonas mm -hmm. halgren they're all archaeologists martian archaeologists uh they're human archaeologists but they study martian architecture right and they're being guided by um current residents of mars yeah. which they know are not um actually find out what the name of them is they are the um they're from Ig ignar they're the i hot i a i h i s i -His, right yeah so they have a pair of i -His guides who are essentially asking like uh, sherpas for them yeah and except that rather than going up everest they're going along this slightly lower gravity des desert like 
thin air planet. Yeah. Uh, they're going to the ruins of Yovambis, which is a uh, an ancient, ancient city. It was ancient when Earth ancient cities were were still in their prime. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting that it's not even Yovambis. Uh, he notes in this that it's not even that far from the terrestrial colony where the Earth people are. Yeah, I thought that was weird. That like Alan Octave is this guy. Alan Octave is like the leader of the party. And he's like a well-established Martian archaeologist. And like Yovambis is super famous, but it's also super close to where they are. And they've never been there before. Yeah. It strikes me as a little like I was I was having a hard time figuring out exactly what and not that it really matters to the story, but like exactly what the nature of mankind's involvement in Mars is in right. the story. Like how long have they been there? And, and right. maybe they well just got permission. Yeah, it's possible. But they, they sort of act like they didn't even know, like they knew that it was close, but they hadn't really ever seen it. I mean, not that it really matters. I just thought it was like, and he, he goes to some amount of length to point out that it was way closer than they thought it was going to be, which just seems like a, a weird thing about it. Yeah. But whatever. They they set out from Ignar uh, to try to find Yovambis, um, and they, as we just pointed out, very easily find it. Seven hour walk. Yeah. And there's like a great, a lot of great description of it. Yeah, read that. Yeah, but this is my favorite part of it. I've seen the hoary sky-confronting walls of Machu Picchu amid the desolate Andes and the Teocalis that are buried in the Mexican jungles. And I've seen the frozen, giant-builded battlements of Uagam on the glacial tundras of the nightward hemisphere of Venus. But these were as things of yesteryear, bearing at least the memory or the intimation of life <laughs> compared with the awesome and lethiferous antiquity, the cycle-enduring doom of a petrified sterility that seemed to invest Yovambis. So again, we have Venus, which is awesome. Like the which Wagon. is different. Yeah, different Venus. <laughs> which maybe he doesn't consider it canon because the other guy wrote it. Like the other guy came up with the idea, so he's like, well, screw you, I make my I own canon. I don't think that Dark Ashton Smith ever gave a toss for canon, ultimately. Like... <laughs> Unless it's werewolves. R- wait, remember the Hastain stories? <laughs> okay. Yeah, like, okay, you've convinced those me. Those things were like a cry <laughs> against any kind of... <laughs> Canon Continuity what? <laughs> yeah. And lethiferous is a word I've never read before, and I thought it was awesome. <laughs> what does it mean? It just means, like, deadly, mm-hmm. like, full of death and and uh, badness. And also cycle-enduring doom of a petrified sterility. It's good. He, <laughs> he's setting the scene with this one. <laughs> I wish that that was, like, a medical term. Like, if you go to, like, a fertility doctor, <laughs> like, you've got a cycle-enduring doom of petrified sterility. Like, I'm well, afraid. at least we know. <laughs> But but anyway, so you know we get a bit of a picture here. Like Yovambis is a like a, an amazing architectural and archaeological site to behold. It is like I think in on Eldritch Dark they mention um, that when August Derleth read this story, he was like, "Why don't you just set it on Earth, you yeah. dummy?" <laughs> um, which is because Mars. Yeah, but I, I see, actually in August Derleth's defense, I kind of see his point. Like there isn't a lot in the yeah. story that is. Like, this could very easily be set in the Yucatan or in, like, outside of Machu Picchu. There isn't a lot here that is necessarily, um, it doesn't need to be on Mars. <laughs> which I, this, I mean, part of, this part made me think a bit of, actually, of the native, uh, the Nameless City by Lovecraft. Yeah. If you set you it on Earth, though, you expect what's going to happen. If you set it on Mars in, like, a quote-unquote science fiction setting, you might yeah. not expect, like, it to be a horror story. This is full-on horror weird, yeah. unlike our last story, which was totally sci-fi. This is ye bait and switch. Yeah. And to, to I think Harper in the, um, in the story sums up the, 
that passage that you just read, Phil, perfectly by saying that place is deader than an Egyptian morgue. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly more ancient. According to most reliable legends, the Yorhi yeah. who built Yovambis were wiped out by the present ruling race at least 40,000 years ago. So it does give it some kind of time thing to... And the Yorhi were the... Uh, well, I guess we don't know if they were the original race, but they were the, the dominant race on Mars before the Ihas. And they've always been more... Who've always been more or less shy of the place. Yeah, and there's legends. Yeah, there's legends about Yovambis uh, that that some unknown agency destroyed the Yorhi. Like a, a pestilence. But it's okay because um, it's probably dead by now. Yeah, all that bacteria. It's gotta be dead. Be dead. I mean, that's 40,000 years. It's totally dead. This is why I'm saying it's not a bait and switch because <laughs> yeah. you put, put that right there. <laughs> yeah, like, he did. You know, <laughs> like, what about that as a bait and switch? <laughs> well, oh, okay, but see, they go to sleep. Right. They camp out. They've, they've gotten there. They camp out. He can't sleep because it's kind of cold. He looks up and there's a piece of cloth watching him. Right. I wasn't expecting that. Other things, maybe. But apparently, let's see, how does he describe it? Because it's a shadowy object. Yes, in that brief final glimpse, it seemed like a roughly circular piece of cloth or leather, dark and crumpled, 12 or 14 inches in diameter, that ran along the ground with the doubling movement of an inchworm, causing it to fold and unfold in a startling manner as it went. Now, this part here made me go... Is this an M.R. James story? Because in several M.R. James stories, the entire uh, the entire horror of the thing has been like, oh my god, a sheet is chasing him down the beach. And then he wakes up in the next morning, and the sheet in the next bed is all rumpled. And he's like, what? Or the curtains came down and turned into hair and strangled somebody. Like, it, it's very um, textile. And so having, having a... a 12 or 14 inch in diameter piece of cloth running along the ground i i would have expected that in mr james i I would not have expected that here the word cloth because to me that just reads like a nasty looking black slug right well yeah i can see i can see the slug thing and but he doesn't even know he doesn't even know what it is he just kind of he thinks it's a dream and kind of dismisses it and forgets about it until later. So they, yeah. yeah, they wake up and they get ready to go check out the ruins. Mm-hmm. And they brought a bunch of stuff, but they don't bring it all with them inside. And I like, I like this little bit about the hero wanting to tell the others about his him seeing the deadly black cloth yeah. in the middle of the night, but he <laughs> can't bring himself to. Um, and there's this great little line about human beings says on human beings on other worlds than their own are often subject to nervous and psych- psychic symptoms of this sort engendered by the unfamiliar forces, the novel radiations of their environment. I just think it's kind of like, I don't know, I like that because it sort of implies that this is a world of, like, space madnesses. Like, <laughs> if you spend too long on Venus, right. then you start to get the, the Venus creeps. <laughs> well, I mean, when I was a kid, I used to wake up in the middle of the night and see people in my closet, uh, and those were actually my clothes. Yeah. yeah. But were you on Mars? Right. But were you on Mars? It was the novel radiation of her environment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was It was just, yeah, it was just the waking up and everything looked different. And then I'd be like, oh, wait. That's actually my roller skates, not somebody's eyes. <laughs> well, right, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying that if you if you spend too long off of off of Earth, you yeah. start to go a little bit bonkers. But like even on Earth, it's kind of a problem. <laughs> oh, I so I can so totally maybe see. Maybe what you're like, saying is that if you're it's bad from enough Mars, here, so Earth is like is to you as <laughs> Mars is to him. <laughs> I mean, I, I I can either confirm or deny this. <laughs> anyway, I lost where we were. <laughs> They're, they've headed into Yovambis. 
they bring they don't bring all their equipment. They brought like guns and stuff, but they only mm-hmm. bring with them a crowbar. They bring like a very specific crowbar and two picks. Yeah, they bring a crowbar, two picks, and some torches, some electric torches. I'm assuming they're flashlights. And they, um, the Martians are not going to come in with them because, as we said before, Martians not terribly excited about this kind of place. Yeah. So they're perfectly willing to guide people there, but they're just going to stay out in the camp, wait for them to come back. Yeah, and then they wander around the ruins, and then he basically gives us a literary yada yada yada, and then <laughs> <laughs> basically, yeah, and then they find out that it's the the place is empty. There's not even anything really other than the ancient architecture there's not even anything that interesting to see out here so they take it down a notch and by that i mean they go down a level yeah they find <laughs> they find a they take it up a notch by going down a level <laughs> yeah. they find a, a yes. doorway yeah that's um it's kind of cluttered with debris and they oh he he i like this part where he says uh where is it oh, i can't find it anyway he um mentions that the the darkness of this doorway kind of flows outward. Like it's so dark, it kind of spills out of the doorway, which is interesting. So they're excited for that. When they take it up a notch, they get down (laughs) and then they go down so they can get back up. (laughs) So they go, they go down and they, they decide that they're in catacombs or vaults. And this is interesting as well. Something that I thought was an interesting touch in the story where he says, even as in the latter day cities of Mars, which are often more extensive underground than above, and such mm-hmm. vaults would be the likeliest place in which to look for vestiges of your he civilization. So Martians which, tend to build down instead of up. Which totally makes sense given given the planet. It's um, There's a number of planets in Star Trek where they do that, where the entire civilization is underground. I'm thinking of one of the early ones that they ran into in Voyager is like that. Yeah. Yeah, so sticks they, with me for some reason. So now they just they're wandering around in the vault, and it's it's dusty, and there's piles of coarse dust occasionally that they find, and he thinks mm-hmm. that it might be just dried up, desiccated fungus that has lost all its moisture and turned to dust. And that because sporification never happens, no. and the air is heavy with mummy dust. <laughs> just spores, people spores, and then they find the urn. Yeah, and the urn is kind of a weirdly, well, they think it must be like a fumigant or a purification thing, because it it actually has a very strong odor. Uh, The stuff in it, rather, has strong odor. The doorway beyond the shallow urn admitted us to a larger chamber whose floor was comparatively free of dust. We found that the dark stone beneath our feet was marked off in multiform geometric patterns traced with ochreous ore amid which, as in Egyptian cartouches, hieroglyphics and highly formalized drawings were enclosed. We could make little for most of them, but the figures in many were doubtless designed to represent the Yoris themselves. Like the Ihais, they were tall and angular, with great bellows-like chests, and they were depicted as possessing a supplementary third arm which issued from the bosom, a characteristic which, in vestigial form, sometimes occurs among the Ihais. The ears and nostrils, as far as we could judge, were not so huge and flaring as those of the modern Martians. All of these Yoris were represented as being nude. But in one of the cartouches, done in a far hastier style than the others, we perceived two figures whose high, conical craniums were wrapped in what seemed to be a sort of turban, which they were about to remove or adjust. The artist seemed to have laid a peculiar emphasis on the odd gesture with which the sinuous four-jointed fingers were plucking at these headdresses, and the whole posture was unexplainably contorted. 
that's the end of the reading. Done. <laughs> so they shine their flashlights on it, and they're like, "This is very interesting." And Look at these headdresses; so they strange. must be important somehow. Yeah. <laughs> so they keep exploring, and they mm-hmm. find in the next chamber rows and rows of those urns, and they open them up, and they feel like the coarse ashes and they kind of mention that Martians will what's the word when you put a whole family together cremate cremate yeah they'll cremate a whole family and put it in an urn so they're they're thinking that that's what this is oh wait do we want to talk about the the crazy third arm that is now vestigial yeah because i think that's an awesome detail yeah Yeah. it's it's cool in the beginning he mentions that the martians have spongy chests and Mm -hmm. then here we find out that maybe that's because they had a vest they used to have a third arm that came out of their bosom. Yeah, which is freaky. The Just the idea that, well, and it's also interesting the idea that they may have evolved from each other. So it's not just that, oh, this one race came and did it, but this race was an evolutionary continuation of a previous race. And as they're exploring, they, uh, they notice uh, something clinging high up onto the roof, but it's too high for them to to get at it so they just kind of leave it there which is interesting uh but it's um it's definitely not stalking them or anything yeah it's a dark corrugated patch of circular form like a withered fungus but they can't reach it so they move along until they find a um a chamber a chamber with no exits in it yeah they come to this like dead end area and what do they find there what's there there's something Against this blank wall where there should be more the farther that they could go, they find a um, a mummified and incredibly desiccated figure standing erect against it. It's over seven feet in height, wholly nude except for a sort of black cowl. It was clearly one of the ancient Yorhi, and they were very excited. They peered closer, they realized that it, its knees, ankles, and waist, um, and shoulders and neck were shackled to the wall, and uh, almost basically rusted on. And the strange cowl, however, um, was covered in a fine mold-like pile, unclean and dusty as ancient cobwebs. Yeah. Something important and revolting about it. But Octave is getting really excited because, I mean, you think about it, they found a perfect mummy. Maybe not taking the best steps to take care of it and stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't act well, like a very well-trained what? archaeologist. No. <laughs> yeah. This is where it gets very adventure versus archaeology. Well, I guess he didn't expect it to do exactly what it does. Although well, maybe no, he but... should have been a little more careful. Yeah. Yeah, he like runs up <laughs> kind of like in uh what's the um the one armed thief story? The fugitive? No, the one handed oh, thief. Oh, in the in the the, the Tales of Tompresera. Oh yes. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, he the octave like runs up to this thing with his torch. I guess it's an electrical torch, so I guess the fire isn't isn't a problem. But like is all like, ooh, look what I found. And mm-hmm. then he touches it which i mean i guess is understandable he's excited um but as soon as he touches it the whole thing starts to crumble because the thing is so much taller than octave these things were like what does it say like seven or eight seven feet tall. seven yeah. yeah seven yeah. feet tall the uh the turban is over his own head and it starts to move and then it um it falls on octave's head <laughs> yeah and it's not just like having say a, a piece of leather or a hat fall on your head oh no oh well, there's a few things interesting about the mummy that I want to bring up. Um, mm-hmm. That when it dissolves, before we get to the cowl, 
uh, when mm-hmm. it d- dissolves, the head, upper body, and arms are still intact, which I thought was really interesting. Like that's yeah, all. that was kind of yeah. weird. And then um, yeah, and then the w- the way the black cowl kind of falls on his head was really <laughs> gross. Yeah, it's it began to curl and twitch upward at the corners. It writhed with a verminous motion. It fell from the withered cranium, seeming to fold and unfold convulsively in midair as it fell. Cleaving closely as a tightened cloth, the thing enfolded Octave's hair and brow and eyes, and he shrieked wildly with incoherent pleas for help, and tore with frantic fingers at the cowl but failed to loosen it. Then his cries began to mount in a mad crescendo of agony as if beneath some instrument of infernal torture, and he danced and capered blindly about the vault, eluding us with strange celerity as we all sprang forward in an effort to reach him and release him from his weird encumbrance. The whole happening was mysterious as a nightmare. But the thing that had fallen on his head was plainly some unclassified form of Martian life, which, contrary to all known laws of science, had survived in those primordial catacombs. We tried to close in on the frenzied figure of our chief, which, in the far-from-roomy space between the last urns and the wall, should have been an easy matter. But darting away in a manner doubly incomprehensible because of his blindfolded condition, he circled about us and ran past to disappear among the urns toward the outer labyrinth of intersecting catacombs. So that's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Like, him with this weird black thing on his head running. Like, I just screaming. imagine him running. Yeah, running, screaming, but then in, like, a weird, almost like a drunken fighter. Like, you can't, like, you can't yeah. just, and just uh-huh. determine which way he's going to go next because he's moving all crazy, all raggedy doll crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, it reminds me of, if you've ever played the Half-Life games, those uh, yeah. the, when the head crabs go on people and oh, turn them into monsters. Yeah. <gasps> Note to self, do not play Half-Life. Yeah, those are scary creatures. I hate those things. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now we enter, like, a, again, it's like like more sort of them searching around the tombs, but this time they're looking for Octave, which is a pretty spooky idea, a pretty spooky sequence of, like, you know, mm-hmm. moving through this weird Martian catacombs looking for this guy and not really knowing what's happened to yeah, him. Yeah, and I love that his uh, his screams turn from like human screams into like monster screams like as he's yeah. off and then he gets silent Severin hot rod goes like back to the same area where he saw that thing earlier and notes that it's gone this seems to be the second time that hot rod maybe has um had a chance to i don't know speak up or yeah. say something that yeah. he's just like eh, i didn't i didn't feel like <laughs> saying it <laughs> that's okay though so what happens they're searching around and they can't find him. Uh, they even split the party into three, into three, into three different ways. Still can't find him, and then they eventually uh, make their way back to the mummy room. Mm-hmm. And then there they see what used to be Octave, and he's there holding like a pointed stick, and he's banging it into the wall where the mummy was chained up, and he's chipping the the stone away and there's he's revealing a door behind it he's reaching for a mechanism and the the thing on his head had swollen to the size and form of a sofa cushion <laughs> so it's this yeah. big like tumescent mass on his head now Ugh. they don't even know where he found the bar which is weird yeah. it's so so they they he's, as he's breaking open the wall our protagonist has 
So first he, he runs up to it and he stabs it with a four inch blade and he's like, ha, take that, you But he monster does it like a thing. second too late because he, yeah. he, like, octave, leech zombie octave reaches in and triggers his mechanism to open this other door. And then our hero is like, I've got this four inch blade. I'm going to run up and stab this <laughs> yeah. thing. Rot rot, he's always a second too late. Uh. <laughs> what the thing was, I should prefer not to imagine, if it were possible to imagine. It was formless as a great slug, with neither head nor tail nor apparent organs. An unclean, puffy, leathery thing, covered with that fine, mold-like fur of which I have spoken. The knife tore into it as if through rotten parchment, making a long gash, and the horror appeared to collapse like a broken bladder. Out of it there gushed a sickening torrent of human blood, mingled with dark, filiated masses that may have been half-dissolved hair and floating gelatinous lumps like old bone and shreds of a curdy white substance. At the same time, Octave began to stagger and went down at full length on the floor. Disturbed by his fall, the mummy dust rose about him in a curling cloud beneath which he lay mortally still. I bent over him and tore the flaccid, oozing horror from his head. It came with unexpected ease as if I had removed a limp rag. Beneath, there was no longer a human cranium, for all had been eaten away even to the eyebrows, and the half-devoured brain was laid bare as I lifted the cowl-like object. I dropped the inavable thing from fingers that had grown suddenly nerveless, and it turned over as it fell, revealing on the nether side many rows of pinkish suckers, arranged in circles about a pallid disc that was covered with nerve-like filaments suggesting a sort of plexus. And he, he notices at the same time that the mummy had similar issues with its head, which, as you know, didn't fall apart when it fell down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that the half e- the mummy has a half-eaten condition of its withered head. And then he looks at the um the the door and suddenly from the door pours a verminous vanguard of countless army. This is when the running part starts. Yeah. yeah so this wave of vombus leeches come out and start jumping on the his compatriots and they're running and running and they're being overtaken and it's like the untrill what's that are you familiar with trill no is this a mass effect deep space thing? nine? Oh no, no. uh uh-uh. deep space nine uh they they're slug-like creatures that actually live in your belly if you're a joint trill ah. they're symbiotes but uh, these are, are much hungrier and they jump on yeah, your heads instead. and they eat your brain. So, and they're more like sea slugs than slug slugs. Yeah, and they take over your body. <laughs> your body. Your body gets taken over. Uh, so yeah, now the story goes like full-on running, screaming horror movie style. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. party gets split up in the vault. Uh, and our hero gets lost. And then he, what is he, he sees a door and is about to make it out. And that's when he gets jumped on. Is that how it happens? Yeah. yeah. Just as he's about to go out a door. One of the things jumps on his head. And then my favorite, I didn't pick it as a reading, but I think this is my favorite part in the story. He, like, the thing jumps on his head, he drops his torch, and then he just starts stabbing himself yeah. in the face with a knife to get the thing which, off, oh, which is just awesome. He can feel all the needle-like pangs, like, boring into him. So, you know what? He's, he's just going to go stabity, stabity, stabity. And this actually, I think it ties into the, the doctor observing him at the beginning, I think, mentions that he had, like, lacerations all over his face that yeah. seemed to have been um, self-inflicted. Self-inflicted. Yeah. Uh, and that he yeah. also had, like, bore holes in his... Right. Little tiny ones. <laughs> Hot Rod had a hard day. Yeah. <laughs> oh. But he says he doesn't, compared to the pain of the things going into his head, he doesn't even, like, notice yeah. the stabbing pain. 
And so he, he manages to like rip it off and staggers out and just collapses right outside. Yeah. Well, after he, um, after it falls off his head, well, he writes this. It called me to the depths beyond where dwell the noisome necromantic ones of whom the leeches with all their power of vampirism and diabolism are but the merest minions. That's mm-hmm. in our last reading. Is it? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I I jumped around because that's clearly uh, the best part of the story. Okay. So forget I it. That is the end. Forget I mean, we can talk about that right we, now. Well, want. no, let's do the reading and then we'll talk about <laughs> it after. Okay, so he he escapes and he's saved by those Martians who didn't go into Yavambis, and they drag him back to camp and the or whatever whatever their starting point was, which I guess is mm-hmm. the, or I guess yeah the signature. They, signature. I think they drag him yeah all the way back to the city. Yeah, and then he wakes up. It was then that the ultimate horror. The beginning madness came upon me. Amid my crawling revulsion, my nausea prompted desire to flee from that seething cavern mouth. There rose an abhorrently conflicting impulse to return, to thread my backward way through all the catacombs as the others had done, to go down where never men save they, the inconceivably doomed and accursed, had ever gone, to seek beneath that damnable compulsion a netherworld that human thought can never picture. There was a black light, a soundless calling in the vaults of my brain. The implanted summons of the thing like a permeating and sorcerous poison. It lured me to the subterranean door that was walled up by the dying people of Yovambus, to immor those hellish and immortal leeches, those dark parasites that engraft their own abominable life on the half-eaten brains of the dead. It called me to the depths beyond where dwell the noisome necromantic ones of whom the leeches with their powers of vampirism and diabolism are but the merest minions. Well, that is all my story. I've tried to tell it fully and coherently at a cost that would be unimaginable to the same. To tell it before the madness falls upon me again as it will very soon as it is doing now. Yes, I have told my story. And you have written it all out, haven't you? I must go back to Yovampus. Back across the desert and down through all the catacombs to the vaster vaults beneath. Something is in my brain that commands me and will direct me. I tell you, I must go. And then he disappears. Yeah. <laughs> well, so this guy takes down the note and is like, okay, guys, keep restraining him. Then our, our, our not narrator, our frame story guy goes, goes off shift. And then next shift, this guy just walks off yeah. into the desert. Uh, Tim, what do you want to say about that little, uh, that little snippet of that? Just that what, what's down there? <laughs> something awesome and terrible <laughs> I don't know what's down there I want to know Is all it... I wanted to say was what's down there <laughs> it's uh... crazy is it like a giant leech monster is it like a whole other alien race so the um, these leeches they can't go out in the sun right I, was um, that ever explicitly stated because it's I mean, not explicitly yeah. stated they just don't seem to leave the thing because they're free yeah. now Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what that was sort of my question. Like, is this an apocalypse story, yeah, or is it something else? I don't know. I I got the feeling that it's a 
past apocalypse story and a you could like this was probably a whole city or something that was taken up from underneath a from beneath you it devours kind of situation yeah but Um, now that the leeches are free are they going to slowly make their way over to yeah now that it hasn't been walled in ignore yeah i don't know they certainly could yeah Yeah, i'm not really sure i'm not really sure how to take it exactly because it could be it could it could be not because i also don't think that it was an like i don't think that the leeches were an apocalypse for the for your zombies, I don't think the implication right. is that. Although maybe it's hard to say. It is like they they had to have evolved into right because otherwise why well, mention the vestigial arm? So clearly they evolved into the current race of Martians, right? Mm-hmm. So is it maybe that like uh, Tolkien dwarves they like dug too deep in your zombies and then had yeah. to like steal up what was down there? That's kind yeah. of what I got. But then what's up with the urns and why were they burning? Like was was what they were burning? incense like i kind of got the the idea that they were burning something to try to keep the the leeches away or was that yeah. just the the burnt bodies of the infected there are a lot of I mysteries know. in your zombie yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh and i don't have the answers and the last two hieroglyphs were hastily hastily scrawled chronically yeah, the and... <laughs> is like yeah i mean they're obviously like like a warning yeah like a warning but yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't think the implication is that the leeches caused the fall of your zombies. I think the implication is that I don't, it's hard to say. You know. Well, I think that the I think that the leeches and their masters did, but I think that I'm not sure that they they're not going to just stay contained to that particular location. I guess even being unchained, if their secret masters are in there, right? I'm I'm kind of leaning more towards fill now because why else would they brick up the wall and like crucify a, an infected uh yori mm. against it you know warning like this is where the leeches are don't go in here but why wouldn't they destroy that one i yeah. would destroy that one a and oh. b there was another one just out that he yeah, saw that night true. and in the vault so it's weird yeah. that um it's like they stay in that region and maybe that's how they get their nourishment or whatever yeah. And who knows what they're feeding on down there? If yeah, they could have had leftovers, <laughs> it's an entire civilization. Yeah, I love the story. It was a lot like, like I said, the last episode too. It's very um, alien, very yeah. like Dan O'Bannon-y, which is which is a, a wrong thing to say because Dan O'Bannon was like very this style of genre. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't obviously mm-hmm. didn't invent it. Um, it was cool. It was way better than Prometheus. <laughs> <laughs> I really think again. everything is better than Prometheus. Uh, that is probably true. And that's okay. Yeah, probably everything that I hate, I would just put on par with Prometheus. So, <laughs> there you go. And I don't mean, I don't, I, to, to an earlier point, I don't necessarily think it should have been set on Earth. I just feel like it is, um, like the Mars setting is adding something, but you could very, mm-hmm. very easily have set this, you know, you could, yeah. re- you could have replaced the the Martians who are still alive with, like, indigenous peoples, and you right. could have had, mm-hmm. like, a seven-foot giant, like, giant human in like a crazy old temple and it could have very easily have been on earth I, I like that it's on mars it's just it's interesting that you you could really have done a find it replace and just put it on earth that's all i was trying to say if any of you listeners out there are wondering about what does this stuff look like i wish somebody had drawn this story in a comic version well your prayers have been answered because richard corbin did an illustrated version it's on the eldritch dark and we'll post that on the uh the website it's pretty cool yeah yeah i ended up liking it i wasn't sure i would it kind of gives you an idea of what the what these leeches might look like 
Yeah, I thought that was probably the best part of it. Just the idea and even shows you like an underside. Yeah, the pink grossness. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was, yeah, that was definitely horrifying. Yeah. So that's the Vaults of Yovambis. Oh, and also, wait, one other thing. In the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game, there are stats for Vombus leeches and vom- Vombus zombies. Um, This needs to happen. <laughs> okay, I'll post it on the... Yeah. Website. Oh, That's how does awesome. it? How does this? Okay, this is relates to a story question, but yeah. I'll ask it in terms of the RPG stats. How does it account for his desire to go back, even though the thing is off of his? Oh, you head? know, I don't think they address that in the uh, in the RPG. I, Actually, you could do take, some kind of will save, though. We'll see. That's how I would handle it. But now in the story, what do you think the logic of that is? Um, it it goes in, it bores into your brain, right? Yeah, but if, I don't think that it, this one got into his brain, did it? No. Well, it just it started to, but he was able to get mm-hmm. it off. But it it did an, it enough to implant the whatever psychic need. Right. Everything on Mars is psychic. I think that's just what we've learned today. <laughs> just enough to implant the psychic need. Tim, you should write <laughs> Valentine's Day cards. <laughs> <laughs> won't you be mine Do i you have, have your psychic need in my heart <laughs> you have no choice yeah. next time i won't stab my own face to get you off of me. <laughs> yeah there's no um there's no mechanic to make the, the to love the victim <laughs> yeah i have no mechanic for love oh man what a good story yeah i enjoyed it <laughs> it's really it's really special i guess we're done with the zombies steal it up yeah, Send the leeches so. back. Yeah. Let's crucify a mummy. Uh, next time is Dweller in the Gulf, which might actually be the story that I thought I hated when I was saying that I hated Vault of the Zombies. Tune in well, to I've find really out. I forward to finding out. Because <laughs> we'll have to wait till next time to find out. And this week, we'll be covering the vaults of Yovambis. I think this one's only singular too, isn't it? Or is it du- Nope, is it plural? it's plural. <laughs> so it's the vaults of Yovambis? The vaults. Oh, it is. Yeah, it's vaults. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> we got the title right. Yay! <laughs>